Okay, good morning. Glad you're here for the 930 service. Good to see each and every one of you. Often when people reach out to me because they need pastoral counsel, they will say this to me. Oh, I need to talk to somebody, Dan, because I need to get my anger under control. Actually, what they more often say is, my wife says I need to talk to somebody and get my anger under control, but that's neither here nor there, okay? What I've learned over the years, though, is that many people, including and maybe especially many Christians, actually have a wrong view of anger. We think we understand the emotion of anger, and typically we look at it as a purely negative feeling, something that causes all kinds of destruction and violence and harm, and that's certainly true. And so we start to think, okay, anger must be a sin, and anger must be something that we need to suppress, we need to tamp down. We would be better off if we got rid of our anger altogether. And one more time, let me just say, there is anger that leads to sin. There is anger that causes all sorts of pain and hurt and heartache in our world. Hear me, if your anger causes you to blow up at your family, or if your anger leads you to punch holes in the wall, or if your anger causes you to call people nasty names online, then you need to address that. That anger is wrong. That anger does lead to sin. But I want you to know the Bible actually offers us a much healthier and robust concept when it comes to anger. Rather than simply saying, anger bad, and just that's it, right? That's so elementary. That's what you teach preschoolers, right? But the Bible offers us this much more nuanced, holistic picture on anger. And uh, one of the things that I want you to understand from the outset of our message and discussion this morning is that anger is not in and of itself a sin. Did you know that? Anger is not in and of itself a sin. It's not inherently wrong or sinful. We know this for a few reasons. Number one, very famously, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter number four, verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. Now the scripture doesn't say it's sinful to get angry. No, it says when you get angry, don't let it lead you into sinful thoughts, behaviors, or patterns. This verse makes it really clear it's possible to be angry and not sin. But we know that not just from this written sentence, we also know it from the life of Jesus himself. See, the scriptures teach us that Jesus was sinless. He never did anything wrong. He never broke one of God's commands. He never harmed or took advantage of anybody here on earth. Jesus was sinless, and yet Jesus got angry. Did you know that? And one of the most famous and interesting and intriguing passages in the entire Bible, Matthew chapter number 21, we read this episode in the life of Jesus. This is where we're going to spend all of our time this morning. Matthew 21, we're going to begin reading in verse number 12. Listen to what the scripture says happened in this moment in Jesus' life. Jesus heard the temple. Well, of course, right? He's the Messiah. He's the son of God. He's probably going to pray. He's going to go read some scripture. He's going to go worship and have a nice day at church. Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He flipped over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them there. Whew, okay. Well, that was unexpected. And as Christians, Jesus is meant to be our example 
in everything, right? If you were to pattern your life after Jesus in every area, you could see uh, his behavior, his thoughts, his interactions, stuff like that, man, you would have the best life ever. And so as Christians, we want Jesus to be our example. So stay with me. That means this. If Jesus is meant to be our example, then our goal should not be to get rid of anger because Jesus had anger at times. Instead, our goal should be to get angry like Jesus. Our goal is to get angry like Jesus. Not angry like your drunk, abusive uncle. (laughs) Not angry like the keyboard commandos on Twitter. No, as followers of Christ, we want to get angry like Christ. All right? Now, what that means is we're angry in a way that is productive and not destructive. That is possible. You can be angry in a way that builds up rather than tears down. We, we should be angry in a way that is spiritual and not sinful because those two things don't have to exist or they, they're not mutually exclusive. We can, we can do one without the other. So this morning, let me share with you a few thoughts, not on how to get rid of your anger, but as I mentioned, how can we as Christians be angry like Jesus, okay? First, you need to know this, and we'll, we'll show you where all of this is found here in the scriptures, particularly Matthew uh, chapter 21. First thing I want you to keep in mind is that Jesus is known for his love, not his anger. Jesus is known for his love, not his anger. Part of the reason this table flipping episode is so darn interesting is because it is uncharacteristic for him, right? Everywhere Jesus went, he was kind, he was gracious, he was merciful, he was welcoming, he loved the sinner and the outcast. When other people were resorting to violence, Jesus often um, called them to forgive, to be kind, to be, you know, those sorts of things. He was a healer, not a hater. He was a peacemaker, not a fighter, okay? So Jesus is known for his love, not his anger. This is really important to keep in mind because we're going to talk a lot about Jesus' anger today, but I see way too many Christians, particularly men, but I see way too many Christians who baptize their mad behavior. They baptize their bad behavior. They baptize their anger and lashing out by saying, I'm just following the example of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He walked straight into that temple. He flipped that table. He wouldn't put up with none of that nonsense and neither will I. Okay. We're going to see today there is a time and a place to flip tables. There is a place for godly anger in our society. But hear me now. If all you ever do is run around flipping tables, people are going to look at you more like the Hulk than Jesus, okay? (laughs) Three years Jesus did public ministry and he flipped out one time. Some of y'all flipped out multiple times already this morning, okay? So listen, as Christians, we can't say, well, our Savior flipped the tables and he got mad and he went on a rampage. And You know what I mean? We, we've got to be really, really careful because Jesus was known for his love, not his anger. His anger shows that there's a time and a place for it, but it is not the dominant emotion. It is not the thing that drives us. It is not the thing that is characteristic of us uh, as a whole. So I want to ask you this question. This is just between you and the Lord, okay? You can answer this in the, in the honesty of your own heart. Are you known for your anger or your love? Are you known more for your anger or your love? Is anger your dominant emotion? Is it your motivation? Do you see things that just trigger and upset you everywhere you look? Big things and small things and other people things and internal things. And Are you known for your anger or your love? What would your kids say in answer to that question? What would your spouse say, your coworkers? Hey, what would the Lord say in answer to that question? 
Are you known for your love or for your anger? Jesus was known for his love, though he did get angry. And so if we're going to be angry like Jesus, then anger cannot be the the overriding characteristic for us as his followers. When people look at us, they shouldn't see angry people. They should see loving people who sometimes get angry and get angry in healthy and productive ways. Jesus was known for his love, not his anger. We see that here, and we'll talk more about this in Matthew 21, with the way that he relates to people in this passage. So although he's expressing anger, his anger is not gonna be directed at the people around him, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. Um, In fact, let me just give you this point. Jesus was angry on behalf of those who were mistreated. This is what made him upset. This is what got him angry throughout his life and ministry. So I want you to notice if you're familiar with the gospels, and if not, you should go read them and find out for yourself, but you can take my word for it this morning, that Jesus never got upset or angry over the way that he was treated. He really didn't. And people, boy, they definitely mistreated him during his life. People criticized Jesus. They mistreated Jesus. They misunderstood Jesus. They lied about Jesus. They plotted against Jesus. Do you know there are a couple times in his ministry that people physically attacked Jesus? Seriously. And yet, in all of those circumstances, Jesus never retaliated. He never was like, oh, you want to go? Let's do this thing. I'm the son of God. You ain't going to win this one. He didn't respond to mistreatment from other people towards himself. He never got pressed because people treated him badly. When he does enter the temple to drive out the money changers, his motivation is not that people have wronged him individually, but that people are mistreating and uncaring. They're taking advantage of and even abusing other people. And that's what triggers his upset, his anger, and his emotions. So let me explain to you why Jesus got upset in Matthew 21. And just as importantly, let me help you to understand why he wasn't upset. Because a lot of people misunderstand what's going on here. So we're told, Matthew 21 here, Jesus goes into the temple, he flips the table. First detail we're told is that this whole event happens during the time of the Passover. Now, Passover is right around Easter. It's basically the same weekend as Easter. It's a yearly holiday. And back in the first century, Jews from every corner of the country of Israel, actually from all over the region, even outside of Israel's borders, they would make a pilgrimage to the capital city of Jerusalem in order to offer animal sacrifices in honor honor or celebration of the Passover. If you want to learn about the Passover, you can go read the book of Exodus. That's kind of where it got its start, okay? So now, check this out. Uh, The historian Josephus, this is not in the Bible, this is from an extra biblical source, an outside of the Bible source. He says this, in the first century, the capital city of Jerusalem had about 40,000 people in it. So like, it's a decent sized little city, but it's not exactly huge, okay? But during the Passover week, the population in Jerusalem would swell from 40,000 to over 250,000. So many, many multiples of the number of people are now walking the streets of the city of Jerusalem, and they've all come to sacrifice for the Passover, to celebrate this high holy day. Basically, the city is packed with pilgrims who want to connect with God. 
Now, the money changers and the animal salesmen inside of the, uh, inside of the temple, they actually performed a very necessary function. They actually needed to be there and to do their jobs for a few different reasons. So number one, if you wanted to come to the temple and make a financial offering, okay, so you wanted to give a little bit of money to the temple, in the first century, you couldn't use your typical Roman money. That's because one of the big 10 commandments is thou shalt not make any graven images, engraved images, right? And on Roman coins, there was the face of the Caesar engraved on the front of the coin, just like, you know, we have Queen Elizabeth on our coins, right? Okay. So number one, that coin would have violated the command. So you were not allowed to use Roman coins inside of the Jewish temple. You needed to exchange your Roman money, which was sacrilegious and blasphemous. By the way, those coins actually had the phrase Caesar is Lord. So it was real blasphemy. Okay. So Jews would never use that money. Instead, it needed to be changed over to temple currency that didn't have the, uh, the blasphemous statement and it didn't have the image of the Caesar onto it. Okay. So the temple, the, the, sorry, the money changers needed to be there, but I don't know if you've ever gone to a foreign country. And when you go to a foreign country, you got to exchange your money over. And how many of you guys know, if you go to the airport, when you land and you see one of those little kiosks that says, hey, we'll change over your money, they're going to charge you a fortune to do that. Turns out this is an ancient business model. Because in the first century, the money changers knew that they had a monopoly. Where else are you going to go? You, you're here. You got to. You cannot worship. You've traveled all this distance for this holiday, and you have to change your money. So you got to pay the prices we charge you. And so they were charging exorbitant exchange fees, really ratcheting up the cost. And that's part of the reason that Jesus was so frustrated. Also, um, you know, as I mentioned, people came to Jerusalem so that they could make these sacrifices. It was the whole point of the pilgrimage and the journey for this particular holiday. So I want you to just imagine for a moment that you are going to walk on foot from Red Deer to Calgary, okay? This is, this is a ways, all right? That's, that's almost exactly how far Galilee in the northern part of Israel is to Jerusalem in the southern part, the distance between Calgary and Red Deer. They didn't have cars, planes, trains, okay? So they had to walk on foot. So imagine you're going to make the pilgrimage from Red Deer to Calgary. You're going to make an animal sacrifice. Do you want to carry a lamb with you that whole way? Do you want to keep a turtle dove in a cage and walk that far? No, it would be much better, more convenient if you could just pick up the animals that you needed once you got to the city, right? Also, there were some very specific rules about what kinds of animals you were allowed to sacrifice. You could only sacrifice the best and it had to be a particular breed. And if there was any defect or default, you actually weren't allowed to make that sacrifice. So it was possible, there was always the risk that you had carried an, an animal sacrifice that would not be accepted and you had brought it all that way. So if you just bought it locally at the temple, you could guarantee it was the right kind of animal, it was gonna pass the sacrifice test, all those sorts of things. So the money changed and the animal vendors, they were actually performing a very necessary function. But just like the money changers, the vendors were like, well, if you're going to get some animals from us, you're going to have to pay the convenience charge. Okay. So we know from history in the first century, you could buy a pair of doves, which was a common sacrifice at that time. You could buy a pair of doves for about four bucks, modern dollars, four bucks. But if you bought it in the temple, in the week of the Passover, the price was $75. Oh. 
It's like going to Stampede or a Flames game. They're charging like $16 for a Molson. You're like, what? Okay. So here's the deal. The money changers, the vendors, they were doing a needed and necessary thing, but they were taking advantage of people in the process. And you can imagine if instead of costing $4, it costs $75, just that price change alone would push out poor people, push out people who were not able or prepared to pay that level of pricing, okay? So that's the first problem that Jesus has. This is the first reason he's angry and upset is because these, these temple workers are doing what they should be doing, but in the process, they're taking advantage of and mistreating other people. It's part of the reason he gets upset. But there's a second problem here. The second problem is this. Inside of the temple, there were four major areas or courtyards is what we call them. And in each successive courtyard, fewer and fewer people are allowed to go in, okay? So the outermost courtyard is what we call the Gentile courtyard. And if you were ethnically non-Jewish, so like you were not a part of the Jewish family genetically, genealogically, it doesn't matter if you subscribed to the faith, you were a Gentile, non-Jew. And so you were only allowed to go into the Gentile court and no further, this was as far as a person like me could ever get, okay? Then the second courtyard after that was the women's courtyard. And if you were a Jewish woman, that's as far as you could go. Then the third courtyard was for the average Jewish man. That was the furthest he would ever go. And the final part was just for the priests, okay? So we have these concentric circles essentially that are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Now here's the deal. The money changers and the animal vendors they had to set up in the place where they were going to get the most access. So they would set up smack dab in the middle of the court of the Gentiles. And so they were blocking people who were trying to get to God to worship him. They were blocking people who were trying to get to their proper place inside of the temple. They were creating a logjam. Essentially, they were saying, if you want to go to God, you have to get through us. Woo, that triggered Jesus. That made him mad. You, you mean... You're going to charge these people an arm and a leg, and then you're going to be the one that decides whether or not they get to come to worship at the Passover? No, 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 bro. Give me that table, all right? So when Jesus got angry, he got angry over systems that abused and mistreated people. He got angry when others were hurt and taken advantage of rather than getting upset because somebody slighted him in some particular way, okay? The problem was not business. The problem was injustice. By the way, this is why, like, we don't have any problem having a merch pop up in the lobby on Sunday mornings once a month. You know, I've had people and they're like, you know, Jesus drove out the money changers and the, the, the animal salesmen. You shouldn't be selling any swag at church. Okay, listen, I understand. Like, first of all, thank you for knowing the Bible. Second of all, thank you for being concerned about the health of God and his people. Like, that's all very well and good. But look, we're not, we sell our merch at cost. We literally don't make a cent off of it. And by the way, it's not like you have to wear the merch to get in, Okay. <laughs> You, you like, uh, today notwithstanding, there are a lot of us wearing this Sunday Funday t-shirt. I'm like, we are twinning and winning. Anyway, um, okay, so the problem in the first century was that they were charging such outrageous fees and you couldn't actually go worship if you didn't buy the, the merch from them. It's not the case here. You don't have to pay to play in the house of God. Okay, so when Jesus got mad, 
He got mad on behalf of those who were mistreated. So let me ask you um, this question, okay? Because if I'm going to be angry like Jesus, then I'm not going to blow my top because I have been wronged in some way, but because others are suffering and it seems like nobody's doing anything about it. So my question for you here at this point is, what triggers my anger? What is it that triggers my anger? Is it personal insult or is it genuine injustice? Is it a petty disrespect or is it some form of systemic abuse? Frankly, our world needs men and women who will get angry over the right things and in the right ways. You need to be angry over the things that God gets angry over. You really do. You need to be angry over sex trafficking. You need to be angry over racism. You need to be angry over poverty. You need to be angry over the death of the unborn. You need to be angry over the lies that our culture is telling us about our identity, our children in particular. You need to get angry over this stuff. But we get angry over silly things, and then we release our anger in destructive ways, not productive ways, and we wonder, like, how come our anger isn't affecting change the way that Jesus did? Well, it's because we're not angry in the way that Jesus was angry. Okay, third point here. When Jesus got angry, he flipped tables, not people. When he got angry, he flipped tables and not people. So the tables represented this system of hypocrisy and abuse that were um, preventing people from, from coming to God. And so when Jesus flips the tables, he really is disrupting kind of the systems that perpetuated this injustice. Say with me now, Jesus didn't attack people at the temple. Okay, there's this really interesting clue. I didn't even know if I was going to tell you guys about this or not, but some of you know your Bible well enough. I might as well go ahead and bring it up anyway. In John, we're told not only did Jesus flip the temples, but he also had a, a whip. He had like a, not like a cowboy whip, but it was like a, a, a small kind of whip with like five or six little strands. And he was like, get out of here, smacking the tables, flipping. Okay. Jesus wasn't running around whacking people, okay? He didn't flip people. He didn't attack anyone. He didn't perma-ban the money changers. Instead, he called them to repent and return. He really did. He, he called them to consider what they were doing and whether or not it was in line with what God had asked for from them. So Jesus was willing to attack the system, and yet he still showed grace and love to the people, even the people who were on the wrong side of the table in the first place. You guys, this is fascinating stuff, and frankly, it is convicting and confusing. It's tough to kind of wrap your mind around these sorts of things, okay? Because we live in a world that is defined by cancel culture, right? It's like somebody does something wrong, then we're just going to cancel them. We're going to write them off. We're going to mute them. We think that if we can make, if we can cancel the problem, let me, let me see if I can phrase this right. Here's what we think. If we can cancel the people, the problem will go away. If we can cancel the people, then the problem will go away because people are the problem. That's only going to work if we cancel all the people. <laughs> are you with me? The only end result of canceling everyone for every little thing they may ever say or do wrong, the only end result is all of us get canceled eventually. Now hear me, there is a time and a place in which people need to be canceled. But it is not over every stupid thing that we might say and do. For goodness sake, why is it that we go to the nuclear option, step one, when somebody says or does something that we don't like? Just cancel them. 
Why is that the only tool in our conflict resolution toolbox anymore? Now you think I'm talking about social issues and politicians, yes, but we cancel our spouses. We cancel our churches. Oh, now I'm just picking on you. Okay, all right, all right. We can't let cancellation be our go-to. Jesus flipped tables, but he didn't flip people. Man, even like, I think it was last week, it might've been the week before, somebody in this church was real upset. They weren't mad, but they were anxious and they wanted to have a talk. And they wanted to have a talk. I didn't get a chance to talk to them, another staff member did. They wanted to have a talk because we had a book available out there for somebody to purchase that was by a pastor who had said or done something in the last week that they were frustrated with. Now, if this is you, I am not picking on you because I actually don't know, okay? But I do know the situation. And I know that this pastor, he didn't commit adultery. He wasn't embezzling money. He didn't abuse any of his staff members. He did an Easter service that some people thought was a little extra. And it was like, we shouldn't be selling his book. I don't know. I just feel like we're going to make connections. For <sighs> We can flip tables. We can have conversations about whether or not an Easter service is over the top. But do we have to cancel everybody the moment they say or do something wrong? Does that have to be how we go about it? Like the Christian church should be the place in which cancellation is the very last resort. It's the place where we are full of grace. We're full of compassion. We know that people are not always going to get it right. I need you to be gracious to me. I will say, and I have said some dumb stuff on Sunday mornings, okay? And I just need you to be gracious to me. One time, I did, oh man, I did, I, this is not in my notes. I don't know if I should keep bringing this one up, but this one, okay. So one time I was trying to describe the fact that Jesus was like a very, he was a real person. Okay, he was like, a, he was a guy, he was a man in the sense that we are all humans embodied here on earth. And I don't know why this came out of my mouth. But at the movie theater, when we were back at the Cineplex, I said, you know, Jesus was just like a regular Joe six pack. And I was like, what the heck am I even talking? I'm gonna say some dumb stuff. Please don't cancel me, okay? <laughs> You're going to say some dumb stuff. I mean, I've, I've had two counseling sessions in the last week where somebody sat down and they, they divulge what they're going through. And they said, I thought you were going to be so angry with me when I told you this. Why? I'm not here to cancel. I'm here to love. I'm here to point you towards Jesus. I'm here to follow his example. And the example that he set for us was, yes, there's a time and a place to flip tables, but people are always created in God's image. They are deserving of love and mercy and grace. Absolutely. Besides, as Christians, we remember what Ephesians chapter number six, verse 12 says. Ephesians 6, 12 says, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies but we're fighting against evil rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Some of you guys hear evil rulers and you think, Trump, Trudeau, that's the evil. No, evil rulers in the unseen world. You do have enemies. There are real enemies in this world. They are almost never people. They are spiritual all the discord, the hurt in our world today, it's a symptom of the deeper battle for souls. It's a, it's a battle, it's a war for the affections of humanity, okay? So let me ask you this question, who is your enemy? Who do you get angry with? Is it the conservatives? Is it the liberals? 
Is it your kids? Is it the jerk in the office? Do you get angry at yourself? You're just mad because you keep saying and doing the same things over and again. You're just like, I'm tired of me. All right? Christ taught us to stop viewing people as the enemy, start viewing them as our neighbor. Yeah. Right? This, I, even Christians get this part wrong. People are not the problem. People are the prize. They're the whole point. We didn't come to Calgary to start a church because y'all got a lot of problem people here in this city. No, we got a lot of people that are loved by God and they don't know it yet. People are not the problem. They're the prize. We are not canceling them. We're chasing them. We're showing them how much God loves them and to what extent he would go to receive them. Okay, I want you to listen how the Apostle Paul describes Jesus' ultimate approach, okay? So like, we see how he, he deals with individuals. He's mad at these systems that keep people from coming to God. He's mad at injustices that would take advantage of people because of their economics, because of their race. All of those are at play. I'm not just some woke preacher, okay? They are in the text. That's what's going on. Jesus is mad and angry about these sorts of things. Okay, now. Although that's what he's angry about in this particular case, he doesn't go after the people, he goes after the systems the people have put in place. And the whole point here is to welcome people in to God's community, welcome people into God's uh, presence. But it's not just like in this one little moment. This is like the whole point of the work of Jesus. So I want you to look at this really, really important passage, okay? Colossians chapter number two, verses 13 to 15. Look at what the Apostle Paul says. He's talking about, in the end, this is the work of God through Jesus. He says this, you were dead because of your sins and your sinful nature had not yet been dealt with, hadn't been cut away yet. You're dead in your sins. Spiritually speaking, apart from God, apart from the intervention of Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's just the nature of things, okay? Then... God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. Then, catch this next line. He canceled the record of the charges against us, took it away by nailing it to the cross. And in this way, he disarmed those spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them, on the cross. Woo! Paul says that Christ didn't flip the sinner, he flipped the sin. He went to war, but not against other people. He went to war against the true enemy. Thank God he didn't cancel us, he canceled our sin. Thank God that when I was dead, thank God when I was rebellious, thank God when I was a sinner who thought I didn't need God, he still loved me. And before I ever even was born or gave a thought to him, he had already sent his son to die for my sins and mistakes so that when I finally woke up and realized, oh, I need a savior, one was already provided for me. Yeah, 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 God, he's into cancel culture. But he's canceling sins and not sinners. He's flipping tables and not flipping people. To be a Christian, listen, this is at the heart of even what it means to be a Christian. It's not that we are always on the right side of the table. Because listen, I'm just going to tell you, read a little bit of church history. We are very often on the wrong side of the table, okay? It's not that we have learned to control our emotions. I don't even get angry anymore. I'm so holy. Ask my wife. That is not true. Instead, 
What we realize as Christians is that although we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God, because of his great love for us as his very flawed and broken children, but because of his great love for his creation, he sent Jesus to die in our place, to take the penalty for our sin so that although he got my sinfulness, I could receive his righteousness. It was God who did the work. It was God who made it possible. I'm not saved because I'm a good guy. I'm saved because I'm a sinner. I'm saved because I needed to be saved. And I'm just telling you lovingly, you all do too. You need to put your faith and trust in Jesus. You need to be born again, made alive in Christ so that you can live the life that you were always meant to, the life that reflects Jesus and the way that he saw people and conducted himself in the world. So I'm gonna invite everybody in the room, just bow your head, close your eyes right where you're at. I never wanna end a service without giving somebody the opportunity to receive the, the new life that Jesus offers to them. And so I'll invite you to just repeat this prayer just between you and God. You can speak this to him. I'll even give you the words. You can just repeat what I say. Dear Jesus, Today, I confess my sin and I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for canceling the charges against me by nailing my mistakes to the cross and then allowing me to raise to life with you in resurrection victory. From this day forward, will you help me to live like you in this world? to love like you in this world, and to seek you first in all things. I pray this in your name. Amen. In a moment, they're gonna, I'm not done yet. In a moment, they're going to, just one tiny little piece left. Um, in a moment, they're going to tell you, like, if you made that decision, we want to know about it. We want to help you, okay? They're going to talk to you about what your next step is. But, but hear me now. Okay, this is what it means to me to be angry like Jesus. If we're going to be angry like Jesus, then we are going to orient our emotions in a direction that leads to healing, justice, peace, flourishing, righteousness for all people. Okay. This is why the, this episode with Christ ends the way it does. Like it's so bizarre. He's like, get out of here. You've made my father's house into a den of thieves. And he's flipping tables. And then immediately, no break, nothing. It's like, then people came to Jesus and he started healing them. <laughs> like when I get mad, I, I need a cool down. Okay. Like the rage meter's got to lower a little bit. I need to go for a walk. I need to breathe. I need to go something, okay? Not Jesus. Because his anger was not flippant. It wasn't destructive. It was intentional. It was godly. It was righteous. And it always ended with more healing, more shalom, more peace, more reconciliation with people. That's what his anger was about in the first place. So here you go. Let's recap because I don't want you to leave without understanding. Understand anger is not inherently bad. Acknowledge that anger sometimes leads you to do harmful things. So instead of trying to ignore or minimize your anger, redirect it. Redirect anger towards earthly systems and spiritual enemies that actually deserve it. And then finally, serve. Let your anger motivate you to serve. If you're mad about abortion, go serve people that are impacted by it. If you're mad about poverty, come down with me to the drop-in center and let's serve some meals together. Let your anger motivate you to serve lovingly because that's the example that Jesus left for us. 